The CARE podcast is a way to engage the community when we cannot physically be with you. We believe that it is important to provide many different ways of engagement for our community. And a podcast is just another extension for you to join us in our efforts to continue conversations around social determinants. We believe that this conversation can be had in many ways and should be available to you always. In our podcast, we will largely be tackling all facets of social determinants, such as racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, and many more, and the forms they take in our society. We hope that we are able to be a vehicle of knowledge and increase communal responsibility for the communities that we serve. Our first episode is going to be surrounding mental health and COVID from a person, people of color lens. And the guests that we have with us today are Jonathan Jackson and Charming Solomon. And Jonathan, if you could just introduce yourself and maybe care and what we're trying to do, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it my best shot. Um, so hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Jackson. Uh, I'm the director of the Community Access Recruitment and Engagement Research Center, which is housed at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Uh, we are a small research center that is focused on uh, an equity-centered framework when it comes to recruiting people to clinical trials, engaging with people about science, and making sure that the next generation of medicines, uh, that they work for everyone. Nice. And Charming, could you please give us a bio of your past work and the reason for your appearance today? Definitely. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Charming Solomon. Um, and basically, I've been doing community activism, environmental justice, and social justice work for the last five years. Um, and basically just helping young people understand the importance of our community and why these conversations are important. And the reason for my guest appearance is basically to add a social justice lens and environmental lens to the conversation about COVID-19. Thank you. And I am Cheyenne Woodrow. I'm going to serve as a part-time moderator in this podcast. Um, I'm a community organizer at CARE with Jonathan, and the whole goal of this podcast is just to provide you all um, with coping mechanisms during this quarantine, being able to understand what our collective, what collective trauma is from multiple perspectives, and to provide care as a possible resource for you. Um, and with that, do we just want to talk about what kinds of underlying con health conditions that people of color are more vulnerable during this time. Yeah, so uh, maybe I could start off and talk about some of these things that are cropping up with, with COVID-19. Uh, so there are a lot of chronic health conditions that communities of color have uh, been vulnerable to for a long, long time. So for those of us who have been paying attention to communities of color, and especially when it comes to their health, uh, what we're seeing with COVID-19 is uh, very similar to what we've seen before. Uh, so there are a number of conditions that I think are commonly associated 
with being a person of color or with living in a dense urban environment. Um, so there, uh, we know that uh, asthma tends to be much worse for people of color, especially people of color living in, in the hearts of cities. Um, we know that there are cerebrovascular and cardiovascular uh, diseases. So we're talking about uh, your, your likelihood to have a heart attack or a stroke. And, and we know that people of color are much more likely to suffer from these uh, particular diseases or disorders or illnesses as well. And when, you know, when COVID-19 came along uh, in the United States in early 2020, uh, it was really a, a perfect storm for these communities that were already vulnerable in so many ways, uh, because what makes COVID-19 so difficult and so deadly is that it attacks the lungs, um, which I, I think many of us have heard on the news, but it attacks other parts of your body as well. And if you are vulnerable um, because of the environment that you've grown up in, um, then it makes COVID-19 much worse. Uh, so, you know, we have to keep in mind that our bodies are connected. And uh, just because something attacks one part of the body doesn't mean that it spares anything else. So when it comes to, to talking about these underlying health conditions uh, that make people of color in particular deeply vulnerable to something like COVID-19, you know, it's certainly the bug itself, it's certainly the virus, but uh, it's the virus in the broader context of I mean, multiple systems, multiple generations of uh, health inequities and health disparities um, that have made it so, uh, so completely devastating uh, for many of these communities. Yeah. That was wonderfully put. And if we could just really reframe and discuss the reason why we're centering people of color in this conversation, because I think you put it very beautifully, Jonathan, and the fact that, yes, this is a virus in itself, by itself, it is a virus, but in the social context that you put it in, it becomes much more than that. Um, so I would say, um, just to start off that conversation as well, and Jonathan put it beautifully, um, the reason we, we are centering people of color in this conversation, like Jonathan mentioned, is because of the environmental racism and disadvantages that we have continuously experienced over time, which is making us more vulnerable as a community to catch disease and pass it on um, within our community itself and because there are so many lack of resources and healthcare and like a safe space to social dis distance we are centering the conversation around people of color and to add on to that besides like underlying health conditions like asthma diabetes cancer um, we are also a community who suffers from mental illnesses, personality disorders, PTSD. So it is affecting us, like our body, our minds, our health in intense ways. And could you speak a little bit about like the historical um, relationship that people of color have had with the medical community? Yeah, definitely. Um, so one thing about COVID-19 reports, they do not include like a racial lens. 
um, or like the traumatic experience between people of color and like research trials is because they don't want to emphasize on the unethical abuse by the medical community. Um, and just to like provide like a little like history or an example is the Tuskegee experiment, um, which basically dehumanized black people and strengthened institutional racism. Um, they basically viewed black people as test objects in Alabama in the United States public health, basically conducted an experiment to study the effects of syphilis on 400 black people. Um, prior to this, one half of the one half of black people already had contracted the disease and the other half were used as control, like control subjects. Um, and the thing about this experiment specifically was that it was supposed to last a year and a year to like six months. Um, but it ended up lasting 40 years because the government and medical researchers were like bribing black people with money in burial spots. Um, and they purposely did not give black people an antidote because they wanted to control the population itself. And this is something a lot of the reports are not talking about, like the relationship black people and the mistrust we have with the medical community because of our history. Um, would you like me to provide another example as well? Definitely. Or if Jonathan has any, that would be great too. Got you. Uh, yeah, charming. Please, please proceed. Um, you know, I I have some examples too, but uh, I'd love to hear yours first. Cool. Um, in another example, a major example that I also wanted to like hint at or like talk about was like birth control. Um. And in terms of this, I would be I will be using the word female bodied, not as a gender, but just like as like genitalia. Um, so just a heads up. So birth control basically was experimented amongst female body people. And it was also to control the population of poor communities and not allowed not allow them to like populate and thrive. So basically, birth controls was, um, for better words, it was conducted in the 1960s um, for female identifying folks. And it was targeted in marginalized communities such as India, Bangladesh, Puerto Rico. Um, and the thing that they didn't tell these people was that there are major intense side effects that comes with this. So a lot of people were just given the impression like they would not, like they would not have kids and they were like, okay, like that's cool because I want to thrive. I want to go to school to have a higher income. And basically like they were more likely to survive old age, but they did not mention that these effects were negative. Like there was negative effects such as nausea, um, body hair growth, heart attack, cancer, strokes, um, and alter of your emotions. And because of this, like this lack of like information, there was a hearing 10 years later and the hearing consisted of majority of cis men, um, 
which also emphasized on like sexism and these cis men were also white and they basically were like belittling the experience of female body people and they were belittling the idea that they were trying to control the community um and 3.3 million people were given like IUDs they were giving birth controls and 18 people had died and three other people had also died from pills um and the thing that they don't tell people or like the public even till now is that there always has been um there have always been male control birth control pills already found decades ago that have been tested as effective but the reason they don't tell the public like hey like we're going to put this out or in like market is because of the same side effects female body people have been experiencing like strokes heart attacks which has been adding to this idea of controlling the female population because they're the ones to be able to like carry a child but not target basically the male society um and yeah that just emphasizes on like the government medical researchers basically not giving full consent and like full information regarding like these experiments because people should have the choice to either say like yes I want to conduct this experiment or no they just make it seem like this is set in stone a certain way so people automatically give consent and this was all just to control a population of marginalized people gosh that is i think if i um didn't know the things that i already knew i i would remark you know that is completely uh unbelievable it's it's astonishing it's horrific um but I think the three of us uh, know better. And then we know that there is a very, very long um, and and terrible history of uh, scientists acting on behalf of large nation states uh, committing this violence in the name of medical progress uh, against people of color. And, you know, for, for no other reason... Um, that is why we we have to center people of color when we're talking about uh, COVID, when we're talking about disparities, when we're talking about uh, the nature of, of scientific advancement, um, you know, not just in America, but around the globe. Um, you know, the, I think that uh, something that is often forgotten is that uh, really and truly uh, the current system that we have of uh, figuring out how a disease works and then how we fix the disease or the disorder is really and truly built upon the backs of people of color. Um, you know, I, for those of you who have done research before uh, with people, um, you may have heard of something called the Belmont Report, uh, which has the kind of those three big pillars that we often adhere to, which is beneficence, respect for persons, and justice. Uh, we all learn about this, you know, in in, in high school or college, um, you know, if this is something that we end up pursuing. Uh, but the reason why those pillars were put into place was as a direct result uh, of what Charming was describing with uh, with the Tuskegee syphilis study, uh, 
um, that was conducted from 1932 to 1972, so not that long ago. Uh, we're not even 50 years removed from that study. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we have to recognize that centering people of color is not just uh, a conversation about people of color. Um, so it's not like anyone else who feels that they don't have this identity uh, can tune out. We, we have to remember that the reason why we're centering people of color is because these individuals, these neighborhoods, these communities, um, they have a superpower to detect uh, the inequities, the gaps, the injustices, um, and frankly, the the poor the poor science, the poor research practices, the poor medical practices um, that the rest of us can't see, the, that we often uh, allow to skate by. Uh, by centering people of color, we have a better view of the system than we could from any other lens. Uh, and so in addition to centering people of color because they are worthy, um, we need to center them because they have perspectives uh, that are valuable and uh, that we really couldn't see any other way. I agree. I think that is 100% accurate. I think in especially during this time when we're talking about the abuses of the medical society, researchers against people of color, a recent example comes to mind is just how the French government wanted to experiment on African people for the curation of a vaccine against coronavirus. Um, and that was very, that was very public, that was very blatant of a, of a clear disrespect and lack of mm -hmm. regard for um, the lives that are, that are not white. <laughs> and so... And so, yeah, so I, 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 all of these examples are just beautifully put and also horribly put because of the nature of them. I, and so, yeah, um, and I think due to the, the horrific nature of these experiments of the inequities and disparities that people of color face, I think we really need to talk about what trauma means and and what the what does collective trauma mean in terms of this coronavirus in terms of the just history of people of color engaging with their governments yeah i i'll start the conversation with that that was beautifully put on both ends by the way um so collective trauma by definition um, it means a traumatic event that affects an entire society, resulting in a shift in society's culture and mass action. And the ways that this is like presenting in black and brown communities is that it's affecting people's way of living. Like it's adding to their financial stresses, is adding to their living struggles, their abusive households, is adding to people's mental illness their anxiety, their depression, and it's all like really like surfacing more than it has already in the past. Um, and it's also having like a negative impact on society's way of grieving. Because one thing about the black and brown community is that we do grieve with humor. Um, but 
in the same sense, we are also grieving in humor and like stereotyping Asian folks and not supporting their businesses anymore because we associate them with having the disease more than any community. So I, um, I have a question for, for the two of you. Uh, you know, I, I think, Charming, that was a, a wonderful, very clear definition of collective trauma and how it's relevant in this day and age. Uh, what, do, what do you two say uh, to folks who maybe don't identify as a person of color um, who are saying, you know what, I, I hear you, but I'm also experiencing collective trauma. My community um, is also experiencing collective trauma. How is your trauma uh, different from mine? Um, you know, is the response that we, we have to prove that our collective trauma is worse? Um, or, you know, are we sort of forced to potentially uh, dilute our own traumatic experiences um, so that no one else feels left out? I have been thinking about that question a lot, um, especially in terms of interacting with non-people of color just and how they experience their lives as well. Obviously, everyone will have something happen to them that can be traumatic. Um, and what I have learned and what I will say to that is that I think the the fact that your trauma is not connected to you being white is the fact that we need to center people who are not white who have collective trauma, right? Because these spaces have allowed you to experience, move through, and gain help from you experiencing that trauma. Um, but there are systems set up in place to only support you. And the fact that it's only supporting you means that these people who are also experiencing collective trauma don't have support. And it means that we're not being centered. We don't have a safe space to say, yes, we're facing this trauma because we are black and brown and all these other intersectional identities that affect us. Um, and so that's that's kind of where I am coming from on that. Um, yeah. To answer that question, people of color, like collective trauma in general affects the entire society. We're not saying it doesn't affect um, the entire society. I think that we are trying to bring awareness that it's affecting people in a little bit of more intense ways than other folks because of environmental racism. But if we put our identities, our identities aside, then yes, we can have a conversation about collective trauma as a whole, but because of society and like the history between black and brown people, we have to talk about collective trauma in terms of being a person of color in society because our life experiences are different. And that is not saying that people are not struggling because they're not black and brown. It's just saying that as a whole, as people of color, we have been struggling since before COVID-19. Like this has been reoccurring issues 
and COVID-19 is just adding to that. And that's why we are talking about collective trauma in the lens of people of color. I think that was really, uh, really powerful from, from both perspectives. Um, and and I, I think I what I appreciate the most is hearing this, I think this, this common theme between your two answers that uh, the collective trauma of, of individuals who, who are not people of color and their communities um, is rarely, is rarely, you know, out of the spotlight. It is always centered. Um, and so if there is uh, somebody effectively saying, what about me? Um, it, it sounds like you're saying, well, the answer is that, well, it's, it's always about you normally. So we're going to take a moment uh, to recognize the trauma um, that is, uh, you know, that is certainly a, 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 akin to the trauma that you've experienced. Uh, but there's also the, this compounding of the trauma um, because we are forced to constantly be aware and service your collective trauma while not being able to heal from our own. Um, and then we are having, you know, additional traumas uh, visited upon us um, you know, while we are catering to your needs. So um, it, it sounds like it, it's one of those issues where there are complications and systems and perspectives um, that non-people of color just aren't seeing, uh, while the rest of us um, uh, have to navigate those systems. We have to not only be aware of them, but we have to constantly navigate them um, so that uh, these non-people of color can continue uh, to be oblivious to them. Right. And I would also just say, like, there has never been, like, a safe space as well to talk about these things because in the same breath, when we're talking about anything that in includes people of color, a lot of people who are not black or brown, they're always, like you said, Jonathan, they're always saying, like, what about me? Like, why don't I matter? And we are not saying that they don't matter. We're just saying that we just want to take a safe space and to talk about these things because in our day-to-day -day lives, we never have a safe space to talk about these things without other people taking offense to these things. But that's all I wanted to add. Yeah, I would also just add that it's not the fact that you don't matter. I think it's the fact that we live in a in a state of normalcy where you always matter. And so we have to find places for us to matter as well. Um, yeah, and I, I agree with everything that has been said. And I just think that I, I'm, I'm struggling with this question of we've, we've been talking about collective trauma and what it means, but how does that look for us individually? Like what can that look for us? in terms of how it shows up. As an individual, I would say the ways that it's showing up, um, a little bit like I mentioned earlier, is that a lot of us have a lot of mental illnesses um, and it's adding on to these things. Like I've talked to a variety of people, um, all people of color, and they are, 
at a point where they are severely suffering from like depression, their anxiety is running high, their personality disorders are also running high, and they don't have a safe way of coping with these things. Um, and it's adding to people's way of like figuring out figuring out like how they're going to eat if they didn't get the stimulus check, if they didn't get unemployment, how they're going to survive on a daily um, just as a human being. And it's just adding to these stresses on your bo- body and your mind, your life situations, and it's having an impact on the way you wake up. Like everyone's in a stressful environment right now. Um, and that's the ways that I have seen it manifest um, in the community and people I know in my family. Yeah. And then from from my side of things, uh, I, um, you know, I, I sort of have this perspective where I have lots of family, um, you know, that identify as people of color. I do, too. Um, but I, you know, because of the, the nature of my job and where I work, uh, I'm also interacting uh, constantly with uh, individuals who are who, who, you know, do not belong to communities of color. Um, and it is it is really like a night and day response in terms of thinking about how that collective trauma is manifesting. Um, you know, it, it you know, in, in the non communities of color, um, there's certainly uh, uh, a lot of issues and, and, and troubles with um, with mental health and, and well-being um, and kind of this idea of I'm trapped inside and I want to be able to go outside or I want to be able to interact with the world uh, on my terms, uh, which I think is, is how they're used to being. And there's certainly some stress and some trauma derived from that. Um, but in the in communities of color, you know, down to individuals, um, it's not just the isolation. It's not just the virus. It is the fact that, uh, you know, these are individuals who are have more likely to, you know, get the virus. They're more likely to, uh, to unfortunately die from the virus. Um, but there are, you know, en- enormous economic and systemic and huge impacts on your day-to-day life. You know, just, just like you, you mentioned charming, uh, beyond the fact that I can't go outside and I'm a little bored. Um, you know, y- your, your whole lives are having to change and there is not any sort of sufficient mechanism out in the world, um, that can help you cope with that. So, I would say that you know that there's there there is certainly this huge overwhelming um, you know problem of mental wellness and and mental health, um, but I think the way that that collective trauma is is manifesting for a lot of the people that I know the, the people of color that I know is that you know people are are starting to to try to cope in extreme ways, um, and and so. I think for people who are outside of these communities, it, it feels like um, the behavior may be um, unusual, or it may it may feel um, out of step with what they uh, what they themselves are doing or would do. But um, you know, I it, it I think that one of the things that I'm seeing is people uh, just kind of going about their day to day as normal, 
be and and you know that may feel less than logical to some people who may be listening but uh i think again you have to pay attention to the system and the context and for the people that are in this situation nothing has really changed uh the world is not kind to them uh there is a substantial risk of uh a sudden health problem uh where nobody really cares and uh no one's really going to to help take care of you so um i i would say that um some of the the way that that trauma is manifesting is uh people you know refusing to um comply with some of the the recommendations for uh you know for self isolation or physical distancing um and and again i think if you think about it from from these individuals perspectives uh although the world has changed for most of us um for the people who are the most vulnerable uh the world hasn't really changed that much there's just one more thing that is dangerous um that goes along with the other 958 things that are dangerous um that they have to navigate on the you know on a on a day-to-day -day basis so you know i i think that we have to keep in mind that uh these are entirely different cultures uh these are entirely different worlds or universes and that um you know just because we can drive by it or just because we can walk by it uh does not mean that we understand it i also that was beautifully put by the way um and i also you said something about the way people are coping with it is like intense and drastic and to also add on to that there has been an increase that i'm seeing amongst our community is like drug abuse um and people are you know resorting to alcohol resorting to other types of drugs um in order to just cope with being in their house or just like not being able to have another escape system um yeah i just wanted to add that as well i also find that uh the response is vastly different from non people of color and people of color to this to this manifestation of how we respond to um just this whole quarantine and the virus as a whole i i i have often found that um non people of color white people always will say this feels like jail this feels like solitary oh, confinement boy. and <laughs> it is very it's very one is very triggering to obviously the people who have been court involved been justice involved and two it it it's very it's it's just very exposing of the fact that you don't have to interact with being under quarantine in these various ways that black and brown people have been subjected to all their lives like we are we are used to having a curfew we're used to not feeling safe outside um and these are not new concepts for us we just have now it's just another thing we have to navigate like you said Jonathan and i i just yeah so that 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 was coming up for me in addition to just the agreements um with charming is that a lot of people are turning to coping mechanisms that are not necessarily beneficial um but are available 
and it it it's I think it's it's something worth talking about um and I think that when we're talking about people not generally just not caring for us in the ways that we might like to have them care for us I I think this large question is just when we are affected by collective trauma right it does that require collective healing or does it not um i think that i think that collective trauma in itself does require collective healing um because people have to dismantle all the traumas as a community we are all facing um and i think that there can't be any healing without healing as a whole and i also am realizing like in our community because there has been an increase of people being at home and people living in certain types of neighborhoods. There has been an increase of a lot of young people being killed. Um, And there has been an increase on, I think it was 14 people had died from like abusive partners in like abusive households. And I think that if we don't bring awareness to like healing as a community and like what that means and what that looks like then we're always going to be we're always going to be like stuck in our trauma and not find a healthy way to navigate through our trauma as a whole um in the ways that I think it looks like it's like checking in with your neighbor um there are online resources for therapy um checking in with people in your house, how how are you doing like mentally and um, making sure people have enough food, enough utilities and just finding like healthy ways to survive at this point, um, whether it's painting, whether it's art, whether it's meditating, whether it's self-care, um, but just finding something healthy to do and not resulting into unhealthy or unbeneficial things that have been accessible to us. Yeah, I, I agree with Charming. Um, you know, I, I hesitated to answer your question, Cheyenne, because uh, I am not I am not an expert like you two uh, on this particular topic, but. Um, my my sense from the work that I have done um, is that collective trauma re- requires absolutely requires collective healing. Um, if we think about uh, past kinds of trauma in in our part of the world, um, so you know I, I think that uh, when it comes to uh, the topic of busing in the Boston area. Um, from you know in the in the 60s and 70s and you know especially the 70s and 80s um i feel that that was a collective trauma upon the city that was never really acknowledged um you know there have been books written about it uh people know what you're talking about it's not like we've collectively forgotten um but we have never collectively healed uh from that particular set of horrors and many 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 others um but I think that's a really clear example of 
failing to do the collective processing and instead leaving it to individuals to move on and move past it um, still leaves this this visible tension, like this this scar on the city uh, and you know the the suburbs as well. Um, and so I, I think that what we're seeing with COVID nineteen um, is going to be another collective trauma uh, upon the people of color. Um, so I know that we have been talking about black and brown bodies, but you know, there I think there are other groups um, that maybe we'll talk about um, that are also experiencing this trauma in in a different way than we are. But it's still going to be um, a collectively traumatic event. Uh, and if we don't find a way to come together and heal as a group, uh, then that scarring uh, I think will remain visible, uh, at least in this part of the world. Um, probably for, for decades or generations. I, I completely agree. Um, I think that um, in terms of visibility, like Jonathan mentioned, I think that the visibility of, the, of pain and trauma that we're seeing of, that is affecting different groups, I think is very blatant right now, especially, um, especially in, this, in this time of, COVID, coronavirus, or people have been met, like referring to it as a as a, a Chinese disease. It's been born from Chinese people, Asian people, and I just I, I I'm finding that to be very problematic and and well, frankly, racist. Um, <laughs> and I I'm just wondering, um, in terms of the fact that. Asian people, especially um, Southeast Asian people, have been regarded um, as the model minority, right? They've been regarded as a model minority, especially in the in the United States context, in the in the United States of America, where they are just more appeasing to white society, to non POC society, right? Um, and they have been awarded these privileges that obviously non Asian folks have um, been, I guess, prevented from. And so in terms of that, I, I just wonder how has the, how has the, how have these anti-Asian racist based fears interacted with their model minority mm -hmm. status from your perspectives? Yeah. Um, to answer that that question, I will say that this this as we know, like Asian folks um are they hold a certain you know privilege in our society, and right now we are seeing an increase of racism stereotypes amongst them, and people are trying to find humor in that when it's not funny, um and this fear now is resulting in, is like presenting in a way of people not, people are, hmm, I'm trying to find the right words, I apologize. People are purposely staying away from Asian people when they see them um, because they automatically assume it with them being contagious. People are no longer, people no longer want to, buy takeout or go to a restaurant with 
Asian cuisine because people associate like their meat not being clean anymore. Um, and due to like these verbal stereotypes and verbal violence, there's an increase amongst Asian folks instigating the fear by purposely like coughing out in public, even though they're not sick. They purposely cough around folks because they are in a way like trying to show like, you already think I have it, so I'm going to instigate the sphere. Um, and this is also just mirroring the Black experience that Black people have continuously faced, um, where people just don't feel comfortable around Black people just because they're Black. Um, and it's mirroring this experience because Asian folks now are not comfortable being outside because of how other people are perceiving them as contagious folks, as a threat, as a problem within our society. And I think from my perspective, you know, what is what is completely obvious is that the mine the, the model minority uh, the myth of the model minority uh, is that it is somehow permanent. That um, if you or if your people could ever just come to this country and work hard, um, then your group can too be as well regarded and um, have these privileges conferred upon you as we see uh, with East and Southeast Asians. Um what we're seeing with COVID-19 is that that is a lie. Uh, that is never, that has never been the case and that a minority is a minority. And, you know, as soon as there is an opportunity to revoke uh, these privileges, uh, that is a, a threat that will be, um, you know, that will be carried out uh, with extreme prejudice, pun fully intended. Um and and I think that we we have to we have to acknowledge that that there is a group that hands out um, social privilege, and that everyone else is fundamentally at the mercy of this group um, to say that you know these people are okay, but these people need to work harder, um, or that these people are suddenly all sick, and we. Uh, you know, we I can't believe that we let our guard down enough to to kind of allow them into our country. Um, and so what you're seeing is that there's a there's a clear in group and out group um, in America. And that even even groups that have enjoyed privileges for decades uh, can suddenly have that status revoked. Um, and, and I think that is the heart of what we call. Uh, you know, the white supremacy culture, that is the heart of what we call racism. And uh, I know that there are many folks who hear these terms um, and it gets their back up um, because it's not something that they individually do. Um, but we have to acknowledge that some of these things operate uh, at the level of systems and context and that those systems and context are just as real and just as virulent um, as any kind of interaction, individual interaction that you can imagine. Um, 
And, and so because it is invisible to some members of the populace who are members of this in-group, um, it's, it's something that we debate rather than accept as reality. So ultimately, to answer that question, what we're seeing is that there is no model minority. There are just minorities, and some get privileges and some don't. And uh, those privileges are always conditional. Thank you for that. That was very, very beautifully put. I think that, yes, um, a lot of people have been assuming that there was a model minority status and that, and ultimately we're seeing that this is a myth, right? Um, and so I think in tandem with that, obviously people are not just one thing. No one is just an Asian person, a Black person, a, a um, Middle Eastern person. They're always a there's always a gender attached to that. There's always a sexuality attached to that. There's always something attached to their identities, right? Because we're all different people. Um, and so I just want to know how are these oppressions on our intersecting identities, right? Exacerbated or just increased or just completely erased during this time. Um, and yeah, so I just, I just want to hear about that. How do you think that is happening? Yeah, right that's now? a that's a great question. Um, and I, I think the way I would answer that question is just to I like just to emphasize on what was previously said, like um an Asian person is just not it's not just an Asian person, a black person is not just a black person, and so forth and so on. And like during this time we cannot we cannot hmm we cannot talk about a certain group of people in their identities because it's affecting everybody because all of our identities is intersecting. Um, And to like resist engaging, like resist engaging in the oppression Olympics and saying like, yeah, queer people are going through it the worst. I think we just have to look at it in a lens of we're all, experiencing a certain kind of oppression but it's just manifesting in different ways because of our identities so we cannot emphasize that other people are going through it more than other people because due to our identities it's surfacing way differently and they're all valid in the ways that they are presenting Yeah, and, and I think that this goes back to uh, this idea of, of trying to define what supremacy culture looks like. And, and I think that for me, this is one of the clearest ways that you can see it, where um, if you are uh, not necessarily, if you are, if you are a non-person of color, uh, you get to be many things at once. Uh, you can be a writer and a mother and a daughter, and you can be a member of the book club, um, and you can be all of these things at once, and you get to be a person because the you know the other aspects of your identity, um, you know, are not flattened; they're not erased. Um, whenever uh, you know, w- you know, at someone's you know ultimate whim, and what we are seeing with uh, with this this age of COVID. 
uh, is we are once again seeing that flattening, um, you know, by by this in group that 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 gets to make these decisions, unfortunately. Um, and so suddenly, when you have that flattening, then it does give rise to this tension where uh, individuals in this group uh, need to have some space. Individuals in this other group also need to have some space. Uh, and then there's this third group that also feels uh, that they're being left out of the conversation. You know, what that ultimately means is that uh, we are fighting for scraps, uh, first of all, which uh, we should not be doing. Uh, and then secondly, uh, we're, we're kind of being put into this false idea that we can only ever be one thing. We can only ever pay attention to one group that is aggrieved. And, uh, you know, if we buy into that logic, uh, for better or for worse, um, and actually I think it's mostly for worse, um, you know, that that is the, the heart of, of what we're seeing where we have this oppression Olympics where um, there are groups that are kind of jockeying for uh, the, the affection and the attention of the in-group. Um, I think, again, one thing that, that helps me is trying to separate the injustices, um, the, the injustices themselves, the, the, the gaps in the system uh, from the people a little bit. Um, so I, I think, you know, we definitely need to center people of color and their stories, um, but we need to allow people of color to be people of color, um, which means that they can have multiple identities and that, you know, there is enough attention collectively um, for any group that is aggrieved or any individual that is experiencing uh, intersectional aggrievement, um, that there's space for, for all of us uh, to share our stories um, and to have those stories strike universal chords, but also to have some of those stories be purely for, you know, an audience of one or two. Um, you know, I, I think with, with the era of COVID uh, upon us, uh, we are so eager to try to see patterns and make sense out of this thing that is so big and so scary that it doesn't make sense to anyone, um, that we will kind of seize on these things that we know to be true, uh, that people of color, especially if you're black, uh, are, are going to have more, more problems. And so we have to hang on to that, and maybe we'll get to the Asian thing later. Um, you know, and I, I don't think that that is a reasonable or a healthy way to move forward. Um, you know, we are seeing entire industries, cultures, nations uh, effectively being rewritten from this virus. Uh, and at this moment in time, we don't know what it's going to look like on the other side. But one thing that I can hope for is that we can be, uh, you know, a little bit slower and more patient and more vulnerable with one another so that uh, we can be uh, full, intersectional, complex, messy people uh, and have that recognized, um, you know, not just by our outgroup peers, um, but by those who, um, who write the rule book, those who are part of the supremacy culture. I agree. And I also have been tackling with this idea of what it means to be an ally and also what it means to move with the leadership of those impacted. 
right? Because personally, I don't believe <clears throat> that there is a, 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 a quote-unquote perfect ally. I don't believe in the concept of allyship, right? Because allyship is just you're sitting back, you're watching things happen, and you're supporting those who are in, uh, impacted, which in reality is not, it's not tangible. Those aren't tangible those aren't tangible ways to help people, right? And so I think I I have been moving with this word accompliceship. I think that being an accomplice to those who, to the movements of those who are impacted is much more impactful. It's much more tangible. It's much more powerful in the ways, um, in the ways that you're literally being able to acknowledge someone else and the ways that they are subjected to this white supremacist, uh, white society and, and how these privileges are handed out, right? And so I think that, um, Jonathan, the way you put it is, is it was great in the sense of like, yes, we will always know that black people, indigenous people will always be the most affected and that we have to also um, center Asian people, Southeast Asian folks in this conversation as well. Um, because I, I truly believe that as, as an organizer, as just a person in society, I think that impacted leadership, which, which essentially means that we need to address those who have the least amount of privileges in society in order to get to everyone else. I think that that is important. And I also think that acknowledgement is is the center of what we need to do right now acknowledgement and being an accomplice to what people need to do um, in terms of being able to operate in the society um, and in terms of being able to heal <laughs> I think that that's important right now um, so I, I agree with both of you um, and so I think in in terms of that and going off of that um, and talking about what we need to do for each other, I think that, of course, we're all inside. So I'm wondering, what what can we actually do for one another when we're stuck inside of our houses, if we have the privilege um, to be inside of our houses? Yeah, something I wanted to mention earlier around um, collective healing was that even having a conversation like this is heavy, is intense, but it's also healing. It's also allowing people to have a voice and to find their voice to state how they're being impacted. And that's a way people can do in being in the house, just bringing up the conversation like, hey, how are you feeling? How is this impacting you? So you can analyze and compare and then make an alternative or create an alternative to navigate through the situation and I'm also very big on like self-care and like making sure that your body and mind is grounded um so I'm super big on like meditate meditating with the people at your house um even like writing listening to music together being in silence together is also a form of healing um and I'm also big on just, like, learning about the ways that you can self-heal in order for you to heal as a collective. Because if you're not healing by yourself, it's going to be 10 times harder to heal as a collective 
So I think that being in the house, just finding a moment to heal by yourself in order to be there and support the people in your house or just the people in general, um, like calling people, like taking space with people, meditating, writing, um, painting, um, and just like all of these forms of self-care, I think it's important to bring up because a lot of people do not practice self-care. Um, and I also think that it's taking a step away from technology, like social media. Um, I recently deleted all my social media because it's overwhelming seeing a lot of people dying on a daily basis. It's overwhelming, like reading about these reports back to back and we need to take a break and walk away and really center our bodies um, just like we are centering people of color in this conversation. Also just like working out, learning a new skill. I think that's great. And I also want to emphasize that you do not have to learn something. You don't have to do something in order to be proactive. Just having the ability to work with all of the have and taking like this like quarantine is a perfect time to analyze your traumas and analyze your childhood traumas analyzing yourself your character and that's a lot of emotional work and I think we are at this point in quarantine in our society where we have to put that emotional work in order to self-heal properly I think for me what I have been doing for others is making sure that I'm donating, right? I'm donating to the Navajo Nation, to other indigenous groups. I'm donating to um, any other folks like trans folks, trans Latinx folks, trans black folks, who uh, undocumented folks who are just being like the most affected by this quarantine. I think that solidarity is, is at the forefront of my work and my life right now. Um, and even if I don't, I don't have a million dollars, but I, I do have some money and I do have something that I can give. And I think that something is better than nothing in, in every case. And so I, I have been really focusing and centering those who I know are specifically affected and like, really, really nuanced ways by this quarantine, by the virus as a whole. You know, something that I all, something that I often do, uh, whether we have a global pandemic or not, is if I'm feeling uh, sort of acutely stressed about a situation, I, I kind of do this thing where I will either expand or contract uh, my worldview for, for maybe just a, a few hours or maybe a couple of days if, it, if it's really bad. And I'll kind of expand it or contract it to whatever level I feel like I can be the most effective. So sometimes when I'm, you know, feeling very, very stressed or very, very small, I will shrink my worldview to, um, you know, just myself and just getting through the next 15 minutes. Um, and, you know, I will celebrate every, every tiny victory that I can, uh, you know, accomplish in that 15 minute span, whether it's, um, you know, getting out of bed and making it to the bathroom and brushing my teeth, 
you know, that's a victory. And, you know, I, I do legitimately pat myself on the back for that. Um, you know, other times I will expand it out a little bit to, to make sure that um, I am aware of and supportive of my family and uh, my friends. And I will make sure that I can reach out to them and support them. So sometimes that is, you know, donating to their favorite causes. Sometimes it's making sure that uh, a friend, a friend's parents um, can have access to groceries or housing. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just uh, sending them a text or a FaceTime message uh, just to see how they're doing. Uh, and then other times, um, you know, where I am very fortunate based on the work that I can do, um, I'm able to kind of expand my, my, my focus of influence even further and start to think about how I can help people in my community and, and sometimes even, you know, thinking about how I can help people around the country uh, with the work that we do at the Care Research Center. Um, and so it's, it's not every day that I feel that I can be super effective on those levels. Um, but some days when it's really, really hard uh, to focus on myself or it's really, really hard to be present because uh, so many members of my friends and family are, are suffering and dying, um, you can kind of zoom out a little bit and think about uh, trying to help people at a regional level um, or, or a national level. And that gives you a little bit of, of respite. Um, but uh, I, I think I, I wholeheartedly agree with both of you. Um, you know, self-care is crucial. It's vital. Uh, you got to put on your own oxygen mask before you can help anybody else with theirs. And, um, you know, but at the, at the same time, sometimes we can help one person. Sometimes we can help a hundred people. Uh, sometimes, you know, it, we're going to vacillate between those two. And I think uh, accepting and being comfortable with the fact that uh, some days will be effective at some levels and not others is is a radical kind of self-acceptance uh, that contributes to self-care while also making sure that you are uh, present and supportive and vulnerable uh, for others however they need. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. I think that's that's everything that both of you have said is very important, um, especially now. And I was wondering if you both or one of you are using any resources that are helping you. I have been trying to connect people with resources. Um, and I know that up the street from my house is called Black Soul Food. Um, they are giving free food to those who are in school, like children who don't have enough at home. Um, I'm also reaching out to social justice organizations such as REAP um, and Roxbury and Bagley, a lot of queer organizations, um, because they're providing assistance. They're giving gift cards. They're giving money um, to those who need it. And... I'm also trying to be a resource for somebody. Um, so if anybody ever needs money, like, and if I have it, I can, I'm more than willing to give it to other folks. And I think I'm still researching in more res like resources to help the general public in how to process this whole collective trauma. And uh, for me, I, I am fortunate enough to have uh, decent insurance. 
which I have been using to uh, to to see a new therapist. Um, I was sort of between personal individual therapists for a while, and honestly, with the with the COVID thing, I you know what part of me wanted to just wait because it seemed like it was really vital to meet somebody new in person. Um, but um, I I was able to um, set up an appointment and connected with a, a therapist that I think is really supportive and effective. Um, and so I, I think that I cannot overestimate um, how valuable and important it is to have some kind of formal mental health support. Now, whether that is a therapist for you um, or a really close uh, friend or family member, or whether you have a peer recovery network, um, you know, now is the time to, to use it, even if you don't think that you need it. Um, and, uh, I, I can, I can really strongly recommend that. I know that when it comes to, um, more medicalized mental health support, uh, if you are seeing a therapist, many, uh, insurance, uh, underwriters are, uh, not charging copays right now. Uh, I don't know how much longer that will last, but, um, it, it has become much more affordable, um, to, to receive therapy. Um, the other thing that I, I think is really important is to spend time, uh, you know, with with people that you like, uh, and whether that has to be uh, virtual or whether you know you might be lucky enough to have that in person. Um, I think that's that's something that uh, we should all be doing. Um, I am a very introverted person by nature, um, so a lot of the things around um, self self isolation and quarantine. Um, don't bother me the way that they've been bothering other people. But uh, even I um, strongly benefit from some regular social interaction from time to time. So um, don't uh, don't neglect that if you have if you have the opportunity to do otherwise. And do we have any closing remarks? I think this is a really beautiful conversation. I think this is one of many that needs to be had. <laughs> You know what we we are talking about the immediate impacts of COVID nineteen, uh, and some of the immediate orders that we're seeing as uh, various state governments and municipal governments uh, shut down and reopen and and kind of figure out how to combat this nasty nasty virus. Um, we will soon move into a stage where the specter of COVID will fade somewhat. Um, and we're going to have to find a way to pick up the pieces of a lot of things that got broken along the way. Um, so we're going to have to figure out how to navigate jobs. We're going to have to figure out how to navigate changes in insurance premiums. We're going to have to navigate, um, you know, maybe things that got broken in our personal relationships because we were either, you know, trapped with a person or we weren't able to see a person for a long time. Um, and so I, I think we, you know, we're still wondering when all of this stuff is going to end. And even COVID itself may be may rage on for many, many more months or even up to a couple more years. But um, we have to start to make space, uh, kind of saving that energy, mental energy, and maybe some saving some financial resources if we are lucky enough to do so. Um, to try to put in some time and some resources into that repair work um, that we're really going to need in order to move on from this trauma. So it's not just dealing about um, the acute forces swirling around us. We have to start to plan and get ready uh, for the long-term rebuilding work. 
Yeah, that was that was put beautifully. Um, I think my closing remarks or something I want people to to consider is that there are a lot of undocumented folks, um, and I think you know they're they're also at high risk. And like, if you know anybody who's undocumented, like, please check in on them. Make sure they have everything they need because it's very hard for them to have access to resources. Um, and yeah, just be mindful of the people and the identities that some people carry because it is very detrimental and it's very important to keep it in mind because it's impacting everyone in a different way. Well, I thank you both for being on this episode. This was this was a phenomenal conversation. Um, this was good <laughs> for me. So I'm going to be extremely selfish in saying thank you for your time. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate both of y'all. It was brought to you by the Otsuka Foundation. In addition, this podcast would not have been possible without the support from the community surrounding care. We want you to listen in for our next episode and stay connected through our Facebook page, MGH Care, and our Twitter page, MGH Care Research.